Welcome everyone to Sasha Moving Mountains. Today's guest is a multifaceted entrepreneur and speaker who specializes in regional, national, and international business networks that stress account management, strategic development and implementation, technology, and new media initiatives among a few niche endeavors. He is also an executive chef. He's Keith Hofford. His recognized talents acquired through his degrees in culinary arts, economics, and social science put him on an incredible platform as one of Tallahassee's young executive chefs and entrepreneurs. At the young age of 19, Chef Hoffert was sought after chef serving celebrities, athletes, governors, and international dignitaries. Today, restauranteurs, food-to-go markets, specialty wine shops, and catering facilities are succeeding on the foundation that Chef Hoffert created. Hoffert applies the strategic and tactical execution to the multifaceted world of business and entrepreneurship through his leadership of 850 Media and Foodie Life. Please help me welcome Keith to Moving Mountains. Welcome to Moving Mountains, Keith. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you and I had crossed paths almost about two years ago, and one detail that I did not know about you was you're also a chef, so you play a couple roles, entrepreneur, storyteller, being a speaker, and a chef. So was the chef born in you first or the entrepreneur? Well, I think um, I think there's a little entrepreneur in almost any chef. There kind of has to be, or you just don't survive. But uh, but the chefing came first. You know, I started cooking at a really young age, growing up in a uh, an Italian family um, on one side, and a sort of German and Native American on the other side. There was lots of food all the time. So you know, young I was cooking very young, and then um, just got, decided I was good at it and went for it. And so, um, but then you know, you you kind of have to. You can't really be in the restaurant business without some go-getter in you, and you can't uh, really succeed in the food industry without just a little bit of entrepreneurship. You've got to have that drive. So they may have been born at the same time. Because of your upbringing with cooking, did you have to go through the formal training as a chef, or were you able to skip a couple chapters of the training? Uh, no, I actually I did go through formal training. Uh, I went to uh, Johnson Wales in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and participated in that. Um, I, you know, I probably could have skipped a couple chapters, but I think it was it was really good for me just to get the good, well-rounded um, side of things. However, I can say I've learned more from the school of hard knocks than I ever learned in, um, you know, culinary class sitting in the desk. So, for any of those out there thinking about it, you know, you gotta kind of have the, both worlds. But uh, the school of hard knocks can definitely teach you pretty quick. So on your website, KeithHoffert.com, I came across a few details regarding the culinary arts, and I was wondering if you would be kind in differentiating. What is the difference between menu development and menu engineering? So menu development um, sort of puts you in uh, the place of sort of writing and creating um, from the start. Uh, you know, like here we have a new place. Um, let's decide what we want to cook and, you know, how, how, what menu do we want to write, what theme do we want to do, that kind of stuff. So you're almost starting from scratch and, and you're writing your menu. Menu engineering 
is a, is a little bit different in the sense that you are really finding out how all of the pieces of the menu fit together and whether they do fit together or they don't fit together. How are they executed within your establishment and the kitchen and the equipment you have? What's the most efficient way to, you know, get the least amount of steps between, you know, the grill and the fryer? And, and so that kind of really the logistics and the, the engineering of it. So it's a little bit different, um, you know, approach to, to how you're going to do and look at a menu, you know? Because you're also a chef that is thought out and you've served celebrities, governors, and international dignitaries, what have you learned about working with a broad audience when it comes to food? <laughs> I've learned that everybody is a critic. Um, you know, <laughs> everybody's a critic and everybody knows food or they at least know what they like. So um, no matter who they are as a customer, you're up against you're up against a pretty, you know, tough crowd all the time because when you don't like something, you don't like it. It's not really a, a negotiable at that point. So, you know, when you've got so many different levels of palates, um, where I was cooking at that time, uh, which is in Tallahassee, which was, you know, Florida State college students meet all of the Republicans and Democrats of the House and State and all that. Um, so, you know, you had a, a wide range of, of tastes, and that becomes a real challenge on top of the fact that you've just got people just know what they like and what they don't like. And so when you want to do your menus and your menu engineering, I mean, you have to take all that into account. And so if there's anything I think I've learned from it, it's just be flexible. Be as flexible as possible and have patience because – these people are people, and we're all finicky at some point. Is that the same type of advice you would have as an entrepreneur and how you respond to critique? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be even more flexible than, than in a kitchen. Um, or, you know, working with ingredients, you sort of have some limitations. As an entrepreneur, you're only limited by your imagination and what the market dictates. So if you're not flexible you know, and you roll with the market and you're going to lose. If you're not good with change, you're definitely going to lose. So, you know, I think uh, I always tell people I learned everything I learned in life, I learned in the kitchen. And that's the truth. Like how to, how to get along with multiple people, how to deal with stressful situations, how to, you know, uh, understand somebody else's psyche or the way that they approach things, how to have empathy, all of those things I learned while being in a kitchen in close quarters with other people going through, the trenches and some of the just the challenges that came through my life that showed up in the form of culinary and cuisine, all the while preparing me for those challenges that come as being an entrepreneur and, you know, facing defeat and learning how to love losing and to really just, you know, enjoy the ride and not so much uh, focus on, you know, winning or losing, but just learn and be flexible. Touch upon one important variable, people. Because you started out at such a young age, how were you as a new young chef able to build those relationships and earn the trust of those that were senior to you at that time? I think, you know, first of all, my food tasted good and they enjoyed it. So I think that was the biggest thing. It was very easy to build trust when you're producing something that's, that's good and that they enjoy. So that sort of gives you the, the foot in the door thing. And then from there, you just... And I was really good at listening, and I was really good at um, trying to meet the requests that, that our guests would have, um, as, as any entrepreneur or restaurant owner or even somebody in business should do. I mean, you want to provide what your guests want to pay for because everybody, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all here to make some money. So um, I think between being able to cook good food and actually being able to, you know, replicate or, or provide some of the things and services that our guests and clientele needed at the time, really allowed me to get my foot in the door and 
you know, move forward with them and, and probably got in a little bit faster and got a little bit further than, you know, somebody who may have been a little bit more difficult or stuck in their ways or, or not flexible, as I was saying. So in your opinion, for those that are trying out the culinary arts, they're a way of knowing that once you reach a certain milestone, you'll make it in your career. Is it like the first two, three years are challenging, and if you could survive the first few years, there's a good chance that you'll continue on. Is there a make or break uh, in a chef's career? I think, um, yes, there is, and that's going to be up to each individual chef. Um, your breaking point or your make-it point is entirely up to you. You can lose it in the first three days, or you could lose it after 35 years. I mean, it's not an easy industry for the faint of heart, that's for sure. Um, and you can only go as far as you can go, but there's a lot of will and determination that you need to do it, that's for sure. Um, but I would think that, you know, for me, you kind of have to either go all in or don't. Um, there is no halfway with it, and if you do go halfway, you're going to find out real quick that you just don't fit in. But I think once you commit to something, as with anything else, but once you commit to the to living in that kitchen life and maybe accepting some of that culture, and you know, it's, it can be a fun ride. Um, there's always things to look out for, as there is within any profession. Uh, you know, you don't want to overwork yourself. You don't want to get burned out. But you know, at the same time, I would say any of the young people, I would say go work in a restaurant for a little while first before you try to commit to some some schooling or, you know, spending money on yourself. Go see if you like it. I mean, I'd say that with any job. I mean, even in our entrepreneurial world, we had interns all the time that would come and work for free just to see if they would like it and, you know, to obviously get their foot in the door. So that's, that's good advice I would give to anybody. Go see what you like, especially these days, because it's so accessible to, to get into jobs now, um, especially with how many, all the hiring because of the COVID and stuff. But, you know, go try stuff out before you really decide – and, and, you know, make a call without any educated guests. You've touched upon the pandemic. What are some of the observations that you've seen in the food and restaurant industry at the moment in time? Are things a bit better compared to when the pandemic began, or are the restauranteurs trying to find a way to offset their losses or come up with creative ways of doing business? So uh, there's a little bit of both. I think that the, the biggest thing I noticed is that the food industry as a whole has already been doing the, the preventative maintenance that is being taught with COVID-19 and, and the things that are going around with this pandemic. And that's, you know, washing your hands and the kill, keeping everything sanitized and, and having access to all those cleaning products and making sure that food's stored at right temperatures and things like that so they're not passing on the virus or the bacteria that, that comes with, you know, food handling environment. So uh, here in the state of Florida, you know, a lot of the things that they adopted from the you know, they adopted them from the food handlers code already. So it's been kind of nice and reassuring to know that we were already operating at that level of safety. And so it wasn't that much more to have to kind of jump on board and learn. Um, but then on the other side of it is, you know, here's your opportunity to really start thinking outside of the box. So I've watched some restaurants not make it because they just they couldn't handle the change or they just didn't have enough capital or uh, their employees couldn't stay working because they got sick. I mean, obviously, you know, we're all facing these kinds of challenges. But I've also watched and, you know, been part of some restaurants and some hotels and hospitality industry doing some really innovative things that's meeting some customer needs that, that they may not have even known they wanted. Uh, the, you know, the whole to-go world or the grab-and-go world has been just through the roof. And the creative packaging and the way that, you know, people are offering service more uh, more service-oriented, you know, delivery of meals or, or just way to take care of their customer. And that's sort of they're relying on their brand and their customer service as well as the flavor of their food and not just on the flavor of the food and, and their name, you know, alone where 
you know, you could, because it all changes tomorrow. So you're only as good as your last meal is what I constantly tell people. And I think if you approach it that way and you remember that, you keep your head above water, you're, you're going to do just fine. Well, Sylvester, I've noticed that there are a lot of chefs doing live shows on YouTube, and you happen to have your own share of storytelling available through Grab on TV. You've done an episode there, and also your series with You Say Tomato. How did those two come into your path? Oh, wow. That's probably a whole other show. But uh, in the short story, um, a couple, uh, maybe eight, nine years ago, my father actually was hanging out with one of his friends over in a pub in London, and they started talking about the concept of, of the similarities between food, but like the uncommon commons and how they should probably be explained. And so during one of my trips to London with my father, we had the conversation of like, you know, what do you call a, a Bloody Mary over in England? What do, you, what do you call this over there? What do you call that over in the States? And so from there, sort of the concept of, of you say tomato, tomato kind of thing was born. And it was probably about five years after that moment that we finally had all of the things we needed to shoot the pilots and stuff for global radio and really kind of put it together as a production. Uh, just things that needed to catch up in our life, and they, but it all just fell right into place. And then obviously we had all that momentum from doing You Say Tomato that Grub on TV was just naturally born right after that. Uh, we had the equipment, we had the crew, we had the capability to do the TV thing. We had a network behind us. We had, you know, live streaming and, and the internet was, was moving towards more and more accessibility as far as, uh, you know, like, like the Netflixes of the world and the Hulus where we're all streaming now. So the timing was just right. Um, I would still love for somebody to pick that up because I think we had a great concept. Um, but you know, we got about seven or eight pilots off the ground and, and, and they're out there so people could see them. And I had a great time doing it. Um, I think every every I think there's a part of every chef that would love to just do that for a living and be on TV and having to sweat it out in the kitchen all day long, but you never know. No, by looking at the segments, it appeared that you're having a great time, and of course now we have a visual medium. We, up till recently, you also were overlooking 850 Media, and how was that created? So, um, so at about 25 years in, well, actually about 22 years in. The culinary world. I just, I think I hit my, my breaking point, I guess, for lack of a better term, where I just needed to take a break and a breather. And so I did. So I took a little hiatus from the culinary world. And part of that was born by just by sitting around sort of wondering what I'm going to do to earn money. And, uh, you know, I'd always played music. I'd always been into the film stuff. I've always had sort of that technical side of me that I really enjoyed as a hobby. And I've always enjoyed telling stories about the, the chaos that has been in my life in the culinary world and, and the fun that's come from it, and the good and the bad and the ugly and all that. And so as I started to move into that realm of thinking about it, I started meeting some of the people that were doing those kinds of things. And um, the marketing part of it just kind of picked up as a, as a knack of, like, trying to, you know, I learned it really from just, again, School of Hard Knocks. I needed to get my name out there for things. I needed to to get the, you know, the show and the promotions off the ground. And so what we were doing for ourselves at the time as entrepreneurs ended up other people needing those services, and so we were able to duplicate them for other people. So from there, we, we were, you know, born with 850 Media, and then we also had Foodie Life, which was a sort of the actual brand that we were promoting, pushing stories and all that stuff of the culinary world. And, uh, and it just, you know, one thing led to another, and then I, it got to the point where I got really smart with some things, and and realized that, you know, 
in that millionaire, millionaire mindset, you make most of your money from other people's efforts. So we had a couple of different things going, and I was smart enough to see that there was talent in the people we were working with. And so at some point, we kind of stepped back and let them run it. And, and what we did, again, it was all sort of serendipitous in that sense that we needed promotions, we needed to do digital stuff, we needed to get the names out there. And it was like, oh, well, Tom needs that too, or Johnny needs that too. And so we were like, okay, well, what are you going to charge? And so the next thing we know, we're, we're making money and filing taxes, which was kind of cool. So it, it's a, it just happened, and we, I ran with it because it was exciting. What advice do you have for new business owners out there? Let's say they have a fixed budget, and because everybody else is investing in digital media, what are some misconceptions? Because some people end up spending all of their money in digital media and they don't get their return on investment for their marketing dollars. Sure, sure. Well, I think, um, number one, you need to educate yourself in what it is that you're actually doing. Um, and two, if you don't know, find somebody who does. That was always our big thing. We, we luckily had some very nice-hearted people who, in the business world, were not so competitive that they couldn't share some of their knowledge and give us some of their tips and tricks that to what really was working at the time. And I think with, with the marketing and the media, number one, and uh, you know, Gary Vee says this all the time, you're trading attention. That's really all you're doing. No matter how you get that message across, you're literally trading attention. And you only have so many seconds to grab somebody's attention, and you have even less of that time to maintain it and hold it. So, you know, you've got you to come through, you've got to come through strong and powerful, and you've got to have the right message at the right time in the right place. And so it's not the easiest thing in the world, and um, you've got to learn to love losing because you're probably going to lose more than you're going to win. But the payoff for the win is so big a lot of times that it just makes it worth it. So, you know, educate yourself and just know your audience. Know where your, your niche and where you're trying to go and, and who's going to use your product and who needs to know about your product and, and who doesn't know that they need to know that they need to know, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a tricky game, but there's people out there that make millions and millions of dollars a year and have written tons of books and I'm sure they've got some great advice and in the YouTube and all that is where we got a lot of ours. It's just, you know, you can duplicate what other people do and then you kind of learn your own tricks and there's, you know, before you know it, you're coming up with something new that and whatever sticks, is, is what you go with. Very true. With the business owners that you were able to assist and help them actualize their dreams, did they come from any particular industry? Is there any particular industry that sought out your services more than others? Yeah. Like it could be so, financial services or entertainment, for example. Right, right. So, well, so a couple of things. So with the restaurant, I mean, with the filming stuff, with the food shows, a lot of the newer restaurants really needed our services because we could draw the crowd and we could get people there through the promotions that we were doing to come be part of the filming and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, where we were, it was kind of a smaller town. So there's, you know, people like to do that. They like to be part of those things. And then in the digital world of, you know, digital marketing and, and sort of the Google ads and all that stuff, we found our niche with, with insurance agents, real estate agents, lawyers, more of the service industry, CPAs, um, those things that everybody needs, uh, no matter what, and when they need them, they usually need them on demand. So, you know, towing companies, lawyers, um, real estate agents, CPAs, you know, people that, um, you know, plumbers, things like that, where when you need them, you need to find them, and you need to find them quick. So it, it behooves them to pay that money to be the first thing that pops up on the phone. You know, when they're looking at a three-and-a-half-inch screen, you only have room for one or two companies, so you might as well be the first or second because those are the, probably the two most likely they're going to get called and get the business. So we were able to – we had a very lucrative 
uh, run with with those industries. And uh, you know, they're very well saturated. And there's a lot of people out there now, but I think there's are industries that are growing that even today you can still make a good amount of money. You know, if you have your your digital marketing game, you know, well enough that you're actually getting results. Those are five industries right there that will take you to the to the next level. Because we host a wide array of skill sets, you are also engaged in speaking. What are some of the common topics that you are sought out for? Oh wow, <laughs> fun and adventure uh, usually is number one. Um, I, you know, a lot of the speaking stuff I've done has been through some of the leadership and community programs that have been around uh, the cities that I've been in. Some of it has to deal with the team working and the change management stuff, and a lot of it has just been sort of just sharing the knowledge and the, the storytelling of, of learning from others' experiences um, in the culinary industry. I mean, this is a – I always tell people this is an industry where you're, you're, you're about as heavily armed as the Army. I think that's the only thing more armed than you are in an environment that's hot, sharp, wet, and, you know, full of – what I call pirates, just because we're all kind of the land of misfit toys as far as, as the culture that, that happens in a lot of the culinary world. But um, so there's there's a lot of stories to be told. I think that you've got some very eclectic people doing some very neat things and living some pretty adventurous lives, and some have not been some of the the most, um, I, I would say they're not bland, let's, let's put it that way. So you know, you get people in that environment and you get some action going and you throw in the stress of, you know, 200, 300 people at night, dinner or lunch, and, and some fun things are going to happen. It's just, it's it's bound to really pop off, as I would say. So a lot of the times I've just shared some of the do's and don'ts and really like what, and just some of the fun stories and then people can take the lesson from that as it, as it works for them. So um, I think, uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain probably did it the best, God bless his soul, but he probably did it the best of just really taking the culinary underbelly and giving people a fun view of just a different side of the world that, that happens um, when you don't know what's behind those doors when you're sitting in the restaurant, uh, you know, eating your spaghetti or your meatballs or, or whatever. But there's a, there's a, there's a huge culture and, and a lot of things that um, is a different side of life for, for most people. But there is a whole difference. There's a story behind every dish that you're consuming. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would agree with that. I think that you know every every cook, every chef, every every person in the kitchen I've ever known has, in some way, shape, or form, tried to relate to the food that they're producing. Whether it was a dish that their mom made that they're trying to replicate, or their grandmother, or it was a you know an ingredient that used to remind them of home or give them some some of the flavor memories. And I think that you can't. You know, food is a way to transfer, I think, your spirit and your energy onto somebody else. And so I don't think that there's a plate of food out there, you know, when it's when it's cooked and prepared in, in a true form that isn't an expression of one's, you know, beliefs or feelings or, or you know, soul, to be honest. Food definitely serves as a bridge. And for those that are listening, I invite them to go to kathoffert.com. Because you touched on the speaking engagements that you entertain, there's one term that caught my attention, and it had to do with social listening. So is that part of the speaking engagements, or is that a separate type of activity? So so that's part of that's a It's a topic that, um, that I like to talk about. So for me, social listening is a lot like people watching. Um, again, you're trading attention. Uh, no matter what you do, whether you're doing it for advertising or you're doing it to sell your menu or you're just doing it to spend time with, with loved ones 
or friends. Um, you're trading you're trading your time for attention. And so social listening is a to me is a it's a term I, I hope I've coined. Maybe I haven't. I don't know. But it's one of those things where you have to just sit back and shut up for a minute and kind of be situationally aware of what's going on and not in just a sense of who's standing where or what's happening, but also sort of that underlying uh, emotional vibration or, or, or the intuition of, of feel of of what's happening in the surroundings around you and in, and in the person's life that you're talking to or that's in that, in that crowd with you or in the scenario or, or within your, you know, your field of view and just kind of put yourself in the place of the other person or the other people or just a different point of view. And I don't think we do that enough. I don't think we empathize enough with our, our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and friends and family and, and those that, that are, that are in our lives. I just think that a lot of times we take for granted that we're doing good and somebody's not. And we forget sometimes what it's like to suffer or, or be through pain or have a hard day or, um, you know, have some empathy for, for somebody who may be struggling a little bit more or have patience for those people around you that, that, that need the patience. I think that this world would be a probably a little bit better place if we all just kind of shut up and listened a little bit better. Social listening is, is that's really what it is in an aspect. And, you know, in my life, it's, it came about through some of the marketing stuff that we were, because we had to learn just what, what people were, were looking for. And then, and being in a leadership role and stuff and working with so many different types of, of personalities and people, you really have to learn to understand everybody's different, but we're all the same. So, you know, you have to shut up and listen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Keith, as we start to wrap up, what are the latest projects that you're focused on that the audience can keep an eye on? So right now I'm in the process of actually helping a, a, a establishment um, uh, with Sheraton and Four Points here in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. We are uh, we're redoing all the menus and stuff in the restaurants here and and uh, getting ready to open for the season. And then on the side, I'm still kind of moonlighting with oh so many things. Uh, I still do the Foodie Life brand, so we're still trying to collect stories and and get some things together for a possible book here by the end of the year. And um, well, we should have actually some swag and all that stuff up, which will be on the website um, here shortly. So. I think right now those two things are going to keep me the busiest, and then you know I I can't stay still, so I'm still doing some real estate stuff right now and some life insurance stuff right now. So you know COVID has really thrown me into let's see what sticks mode, and um, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but very fortunately, a lot of it is sticking. However, that's going to leave me very busy here in the next couple months. But um, you know the we'll 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 be keeping up with things as much as we can. Um, I'm also in the process of looking for. Anybody that just wants to just join in and help, I can always use another set of hands. So I'll put that out there. If they can contact me through the uh, through the website, and I'll be more than happy to uh, relate to a fellow culinarian and, and see if they can uh, join the ride with me. Oh, that sounds exciting that you have a wide array of projects in your portfolio. The more options, the better. And finally, when will we see you in front of the camera again? So actually, that won't be too long. Well, we're going to be shooting some film here at the Sheraton, the Four Points here in Fort Walton, just for some of their publicity that we're doing and some of the the culinary trends that we're going to just try to hopefully start and bring uh, bring to the forefront here. So uh, you know, on our Facebook and Instagram, it's not only mine personally, but also through the Marriotts and Sheratons and, and Four Points, we'll be we'll be pushing some stuff here. So we're probably uh, probably not long, about six six to eight weeks away. 
Uh, we'll probably start seeing some more content coming out from us. And you're welcome to let audiences know where they can contact you, please. So right now, feel, feel free to go through the ketofer.com. Um, and most of my contact information is there, and you can get a message to me. I'll have the, uh, the links to our Foodie Life site that will be up and running here hopefully by the end of the week. And, um, and there will be some contact, more contact information there. So feel free, or then come down and see me in Fort Walton, Florida. If you've never been on an adventure, <laughs> it's definitely one. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you have a lot of adventures, so it means that we'll have to call you back in the moving mountains. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you got to keep life entertaining. Keith, thank you for sharing your wisdom with the audiences. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.